0: Well, I would invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles if you have them with you or on your iPad or your iPhone or whatever device you have and turn with me to the book, the, the book of Luke, the passage that was just read, Luke chapter 10. On Wednesday, April 7th, on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, an awful event took place. In what was apparently a road rage incident, one driver shot into the car of another driver and 13-month-old Caden Swan was struck in the head by a bullet. A man from Chicago's Gold Coast pulled his Tesla over at the scene of that accident while others sped by. A woman holding little Caden's unresponsive body climbed out of the car and was crying for help. The driver of the Tesla, wanting to remain anonymous, simply gave this account of the incident. I didn't get out of the car. It wasn't much of a conversation. I remember her pleading, help me. The man said, just jump in. I will help you get to the hospital. Then he drove the woman, who was later identified as the boy's grandmother, and the child to Northwestern University Medical Center. This unnamed man was hailed in the headlines as a good Samaritan. And and by the way, and I keep checking on a regular basis, little Caden continues to show steady progress toward health. Good Samaritan. No, No matter what people think of the Bible, no matter what people think of Jesus, When you say the words Good Samaritan, everybody seems to have a a bit of an idea of what that means. Uh, There's almost an immediate understanding of someone who stopped to help another. Uh, We even have what's called Good Samaritan laws, that if you stop to help someone, and in the course of your trying to help them, maybe they are further injured, they they can't, in a litigious society, sue you because you were acting as a good Samaritan we come to a very very familiar story today the story of the good Samaritan but I think it's far more than just a story that kind of shows us how we ought to help others out it's a story that Jesus uses to fly into the face of conventional wisdom classism even racism It's a story that should challenge us on how we treat and view each other as fellow human beings. Now, the story begins very, very simply. It begins with an interaction between Jesus and an expert in the Mosaic Law. In the halls of learning in the first century, there had been a little bit of a debate going on. It had to do with how do we boil the law of Moses down to its essence? How do we do that? What is the simplest way to reflect the full law of God? (laughs) When I was in seminary, I remember those days... Sitting down in the seminary lounge, you paid your quarter for a cup of coffee, it was on the honor system, and you had this little styrofoam cup of coffee and we sat at tables and oh, did we have conversations, did we have debates. We, we had it all figured out in so many ways and we could defend the ways we had it figured out. We had just come out of theology class or exegesis or Hebrew and Greek grammar and we had it made. I can tell you something, real life ministry almost 36 years later is way different than what we debated in the seminary lounge in those days. But you know, just like us, the experts in the law and all, they had these debates. Now in the first century, a teacher or a rabbi would usually sit to teach. And he would sit up, maybe even on a platform similar to this, and then the students would sit down so that they were sitting below him. Some of us in in halls of learning, we talk about having sat under a professor. It's that kind of idea. When a student had a question to ask, or when a student was to uh, respond to a question that the rabbi asked, they would stand out of respect, and they would either ask their question or respond to the question. And so that's what we have here uh, somewhat. Verse 25 of chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we have this expert stand showing that respect, but Luke gives us a little bit of a hint into his motive. He stood up to Test Jesus. That word test, it's the same word used earlier in your New Testament. The Satan came along to test or tempt Jesus. It's a word that can mean to trap someone as if you want to trap their words and entrap them. And so uh, he said, sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to, I'm not showing you a great deal of respect. I want to kind of trap you, but I want to know what are you going to say about this? This was not an unusual question. As I said, it was asked often in Pharisaical circles. Uh, the, the point of the question was, what's that essence that I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, and it's interesting, I, the word inherit might not be the best word here because we think inherit, we think, well, you don't do anything to inherit. You know, you, uh, you just are there. You know, I received a little bit of an inheritance after my parents passed away. I did nothing. I was just born. You know, I didn't put any effort into that. It might be, what must I a better term would be, to gain possession of or to receive. Remember, this man is steeped in his understanding of the Mosaic Law and most likely of the various interpretations and additional regulations that had been added to that law. So his life was spent in understanding how to obey the law of Moses. Doing is part of his theology. Doing is part of how he lives his life. And interestingly enough, Jesus chooses not to address that particular issue. In good Rabbinical form, Jesus responds to the question with a question. Now, we know that's not how you're supposed to do it, but that's how the rabbis did it. Close the doors. Could you close the doors? That's how the, the, the rabbis did it. So Jesus responds with a question What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? a great question. Before I answer your question, tell me what you know. Before I answer your question, tell me where you're coming from. And the man does. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, actually, quoting that, there's more to it. He would have probably been thinking about Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema passage, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And so he says, you know, that's the law. I need to love God with every fiber of my being. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself, quoting directly from Leviticus chapter 19 in the last part of verse 18. Jesus responds. Jesus responds and says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, you know, the conversation could have ended right there. In fact, earlier, in in fact, in the book of Matthew, we have Jesus saying, this is the essence of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the, the whole, all of the law and the prophets, Jesus said, Hang on those two commands, so they could have ended it right there, and everything would have been fine. Everybody could have gone home, and it would have been just great. But the lawyer had a, the, the expert in the law had a second question, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, "And who is my neighbor?" Boy, that phrase. And he wanted to justify himself. That is one that has just gnawed at me for some time. You see, here's the deal. We talk about compassion, and and we talk about compassion to, to strangers, and we talk about compassion to those who look differently than we do. Sometimes it's very easy to justify ourselves. I've preached on this passage several times before, and... One thing I try to do is I try to look at a passage with what I would call fresh eyes. Try to put aside all my old notes, you know, and and say, okay, let me come at it again as if I've never seen it before. It's a bit of a challenge, but you can do it. And, And I begin to look at the fact that, to go back and look at where this man was quoting from. And he could very easily justify himself based on his personal reading and interpretation of Leviticus 19, verses 16 to 18. Listen to these words. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, it's very possible, and according to some scholars, this man could have already had a list in his mind as to who his neighbors were. And the way he looked at this passage, he could have justified that list. Your fellow Israelite, your people, that's what's said. Well, then that has to exclude the Gentiles because they're Gentile dogs. They don't fit. So, okay, my neighbors include fellow Israelites. But then it probably doesn't always include women because women don't have any standing in the community. So now it's just Israelite males that I should be aware of. And we absolutely know that not only does it not include Gentiles, but it would definitely not include the Samaritans because everybody in Israel hates the Samaritans. So my list is a very small list of who my neighbor is. And so he wanted to justify himself. Now, I'm speculating there. I get that. And interestingly enough, in his list, he may have left out The latter part of Leviticus 19 that says that you are to treat the foreigner among you as a native-born. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted, he was, I I think he was hoping that, that Jesus would just kind of validate his list. That Jesus would validate his way of looking at the world. That Jesus would tell him the lenses that you're seeing through are just fine. Boy, as that phrase has gnawed at me, I've thought of ways I've tried to justify myself in so many different ways. And as I thought about how we do that, I thought of several categories. Sometimes I justify myself by doing what I call looking down the ladder. What do I mean by that? Simply this. Well, I'm not as bad as, you know, I might be bad. I might have made some, but I'm not as bad as that person. They're really worse. Sometimes I justify myself by deflecting responsibility. Well, this is—it's not my job. I don't need to get involved. You know, I—I I, I shouldn't get involved. Somebody's going to come and help them out. It's not—not not my job. Sometimes I, I found this, especially when I was a youth pastor. Uh, some of the young people we would work with would try to justify themselves, uh, projecting unrealistic scenarios. Well, yeah. What if my parents told me to rob a bank, should I obey them then? Sometimes I try to justify myself by limiting the extent of God's commands. Well, it doesn't have the same meaning today as it did then. You know, does God really want us to do exactly the way it has here? Jesus doesn't give us Or give this man any room for self-justification as he responds to this. Jesus doesn't allow us to come up with this minimal list of who's acceptable. Jesus is going to do what he consistently did. He's going to take the essence of the law and shows how it applies to a greater extent than anyone thought imaginable. Here's the first thing I want you to remember today. When it comes to showing compassion... Jesus leaves us no room for consequent, for compromise. You see, the question I have to repeatedly ask myself on a regular basis, and I wish I could say I'm like 100% all the time, am I showing God-like compassion and mercy to those who are different from me? Do I treat them with respect? Do I work to not judge them because of their appearance? Do I try to put myself in their position? But Jesus, instead of giving the man a list, tells a story. It's a story that was not unfamiliar to the listeners. You see, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was a very dangerous stretch of road. And so we have this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. In fact, most travelers would never travel the road from Jerusalem to Jericho alone. There was always safety in numbers. This man is attacked. He's brutally beaten. All his belongings are taken from him and he's left by the side of the road hanging on to life by a thread. Now, Jesus continues the story. There's a priest that happens to come down the same road. Remember something else. In the Bible, you go up to Jerusalem to worship and to go to the temple to make sacrifices. You go down from Jerusalem when you're leaving the city and going away. And so this priest is is going down from Jerusalem. What that means is this priest has completed his two weeks of service. Uh, there was a, a rotation system by that time in the first century. Uh, we had looked at the story of Zechariah earlier in uh, the Gospel of Luke and how that, uh, the, the timing of him being able to even get into the Holy of Holies was just a work of God. You had these rotations. So this priest had finished his two-week rotation. He was going home. He was going down from Jerusalem. It's believed by many scholars that by this time in the first century, also called the Second Temple uh, period, by this time in the first century, most priests were well-to-do, especially those who saw the priesthood as a way to pad their own pockets. Remember again what Jesus did twice In his ministry, in his earthly ministry, he went in and he turned over over the money changers' tables. And and the the, the statement, I think I, I like Mark's statement, my house will not be called a den of thieves. It will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, you know, who allows those people to be there? It was the priests. And so, you know, skim a little bit off the top, give me my percentage. And so it's very possible that this priest going down from Jerusalem, going away from his time of service, it's very possible that he was not walking but had a mode of transportation that could have been helpful to this guy laying there on the side of the road. And, and, you know, you've got to understand what's going through that priest's mind as he sees this person laying by the side of the road. Several things could have been going through his mind. One is, I don't know, because, you know, he's not wearing, you know, we don't have a wallet or anything. I don't know if he's a card-carrying Israelite or not. Because if he's a fellow Israelite, I'm duty-bound to help him. But I can't tell. I don't know if he's alive or dead. And if he's dead, then if I go over and touch him, then according to Numbers 19, I am ceremonially unclean. I have to turn around and go back to Jerusalem. I have to isolate for seven days. You know, that, that's just going to be a lot. I don't have to go through the purification rites. That could have ramifications for his family as well. So for him in that moment... The safest choice was to do nothing. It was as if his purification was more important to him than anything else. Being ceremonially pure and acceptable to the community outweighed compassion. Now Jesus lets the priest go on. And he says, so too a Levite when he came to the place saw him passed by on the other side. We don't know how far behind the Levite was. Maybe the Levite was close enough that he could see that the priest was kind of conflicted and kind of went on by. Well, when you're a Levite, you're not going to do anything that's going to upstage a priest. So maybe for him it was all the same purification things going through and all the same laws from Numbers 19... There was no way a Levite was going to do anything that would show up a priest. No way he was going to make himself ceremonially unpure if a priest wouldn't do it. Whatever the reason, he passes by as well. Part of me believes, because I know that Jesus was a master storyteller. Part of me believes there was a long, dramatic pause at this moment. Part of me believes that Jesus was waiting to build the tension just a little bit. You see, your average listener who would have been sitting around, who was Jewish, who would have been saying to the expert in the law, that's a great question. They are hoping, expecting, believing that the next person by is going to be a Jewish layman who has also been helping out in the temple and is going to show compassion. Jesus does not give him that concession. He says, but a Samaritan but a Samaritan as he traveled by. If you are the typical Jewish person in the first century, you have just bristled. You are in shock and anger that Jesus would now show a Samaritan coming by. The the hatred of the Jews and the Samaritans goes way back historically. Some take it all the way back to following King Solomon's death, that the ten tribes that formed their own nation in the northern area that called themselves Israel, established their own system of worship on Mount Gerizim. And so that group was carried away into exile in 722 BCE by the Assyrians and were supplanted by people who had no inkling of the God of Israel. And there was intermarriage that went on. You can add to that in Israel's history, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, when there was opposition to the reconstruction of Jerusalem, to the building of the wall, the Samaritans were part of that opposition. This group was looked at by even the most pious Jew as a group of half-breeds who were not to be tolerated in the least. So when Jesus says, but a Samaritan, it just boils up. Now, nobody says anything, but he has caught their attention. The story of the Good Samaritan is a story about you and me. It's a story of compassion. It's a story in which the minority, a man who's judged because of his race, condemned for something over which he has no control, shows compassion. A compassionate person sees and acts. Let's come back to the words of Jesus. "'But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, "'and when he saw him, he took pity on him. "'He saw him, he had compassion. "'He saw him, he took pity.' He saw him and he knew he needed to act. He saw him and he knew that something had to be done. I can't in good conscience keep walking by and leave this man laying here if there is a chance. He saw and he acted. You and I, if we are to be people of compassion, we need to be not walking around with blinders on. We need to be observant of the world around us, observant of the people around us to see and to act. So what did he do? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. A compassionate person gets involved. And involvement is messy. First, he went to him. He had to make a conscious effort to go to that side of the road where the man was. Things he didn't know. He didn't know if it was all a ruse. Maybe this guy was laying there on the side of the road because his friends were hiding up in the rocks and they were going to come out and attack the Samaritan and take all his stuff. He didn't know. He just knew he needed to act. He went to him. Then he treated his wounds. That took time. He treated his wounds with oil and wine. Wine acted as a disinfectant. Oil for soothing. So he took the time. I don't know how much oil and wine he had with him. I don't know how much you know, he had available. But what he had, he used. And he treated his wounds. And then he bandaged his wounds. Some scholars say that he may have torn some of his own clothes to make the bandages to wrap around the man's wounds. Then he lifted the dead weight of this man... Up and secured him to his donkey. And then he led the donkey into the town. He took him to an inn and took care of him. That means that he stayed up. He tended to the wounds. He gave him some water when he needed it. Maybe when he needed some food, he gave him some food. He took care of him all night long. He got dirty, bloody, he sacrificed sleep, he put his own business on hold. And I dare say, were the wounded man an Israelite, and had he known that it was a Samaritan caring for him, he may have demanded that he leave the room. If we are to be people of compassion, we must be willing to run the risk of being misunderstood. In all the upheaval and social unrest in our country, it's easy to take sides. But I'm convinced that we will never argue someone over to our side. I'm convinced that, that in fact, we need to be careful to make sure that our side is God's side. That we say, okay, before I say, oh, God only likes the people I like or hates the people I like. What is God's side? And what I see here is God's side is the side of compassion. The side of being willing to take a risk for the life of someone else. A compassionate person sees and acts. A compassionate person, compassionate person gets involved. But also a compassionate person bears the cost. Have you ever thought about what it would have cost the Samaritan to show compassion. It cost him time. It cost him his agenda and his plans. It cost him his supplies. And Jesus leaves us with another detail. It cost him money. Notice. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. According to scholars, a denarius was a day's wages. Some reckon that one twelfth of a denarius would buy one night's stay in an inn, room and board. So, the Samaritan left two days' wages, or in other words, paid for upwards to 24 nights. And he left the tab open. Would you buy 24 nights of a hotel for a stranger? For someone you didn't know? We have no idea... And we know it's a parable, but he received nothing in return. More than likely was the, would have been the subject of mocking and derision even by the man he helped. See, sometimes there's no glamour in compassion. There's also sometimes no tangible reward in compassion. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as itself, then it's going to show itself in compassionate acts. It's going to show itself in compassionate involvement. It's going to show itself in compassionate cost. So Jesus wraps up the story, turns to the man and says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And, and you know, it's interesting, just a little twist in the language there. Another way you could translate is that, which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? I mean, that wasn't that the question? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus says, okay, I've told you this story. What do you think? What's the moral of the story? You're sharp. You're an expert in the law. You're learned. What's the moral of the story? Which one became a neighbor? First, note the response. Note the response. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to utter the word Samaritan. But he had been put in a box that he could not get out of. The one who had mercy. I want to be the one who has mercy. I want to be that one. I want to be the one when the Lord says, how did you become a neighbor to that person that you don't even know? I want to be the one that said, because I showed him godlike mercy. Let me leave you with some thoughts. Thoughts that challenge me every day. Any person who crosses my path on a given day is my neighbor. And I become their neighbor when I love that person as I love myself. I become their neighbor. When I treat that person in the same way I want them to treat me, I become their neighbor when I show them respect and kindness due to a fellow human being that is made in the image of God just as I am. How how can I do that? How can I see people as God sees them? How can I love somebody as myself when I fundamentally disagree with their actions or their lifestyles, their points of view, their politics, their morals, or anything else. How can I do that? Well, for me, it comes back to what we remembered just a a few weeks ago. For me, it comes back to Good Friday. For me, it comes back to the cross. You see, the cross is the great equalizer. The cross and all that it represents, Jesus Christ entering into our world, entering into our brokenness, entering into our experience, and then willingly going and dying for our sins on the cross. The cross is no respecter of nationality or immigration status or race or ethnicity or gender. I can have compassion because Jesus has had greater compassion on me. I can get involved because God the Son got involved for me. I can bear the cost of compassion because a greater cost was born for me. You are my neighbor. Not just because you live near me. Not just because you look somewhat like me. Not just because you may agree with me. You are my neighbor because you are created in the image of God just as I am. And therefore, I am called by God to show compassion when the situation warrants it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It really does pull us up short. It really does remind us that we have no uh, no wiggle room You don't leave us room for compromise. You call us to be compassionate. May we be people of compassion. and May we simply ask you to continue to change our heart so that we can be the one who shows mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.